0: Diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, And hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered.
1: Dang, Jonah Lanto.
0: Don Palumbo. Hi. Oh man, feels it always feels a little serious whenever we sit down here. Because it is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Big thanks again to everybody here being with us. Where we're coming at you, recording from 10 North Maine at the first ever official Midwest Murder Dinner Party. It's a it's a it's a pretty cool deal, and we thank everyone for being here with us and. Uh, for 10 North Main for having us. And thanks, of course, to everyone who takes the time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on either iTunes or Spotify. It motivates us. It means a lot to us, and it really helps us get a little added recognition. We appreciate it big time. And Don, I'm curious, what, what are people saying about Midwest Murder these days?
1: Well, the first one is Authentic. Five stars from Trophy Wife 957 someone
0: (laughs) trophy wife 957 is that what you said
1: (laughs) that's what i said awesome Well, well done i i respect that um if someone wants to listen to a podcast that is going to be authentic this is it i appreciate the rawness and realness of the storytelling you don't sugarcoat you don't downplay filter what happened you tell the story historically as it happened you both have soothing and pleasant voices as well as perfect enunciation great job dang thank you well, thank my children you. would not say that i have a soothing and pleasant voice but i was
0: th- <laughs> i was thinking yeah. the same damn thing like i think your voice is really soothing don but not so much when you ask
1: and, and vice versa the, yeah. and, and actually next time my children are complaining about my voice i'm gonna say well trophy wife says it's fine <laughs> but
0: right when when my daughter tells me to stop explaining what i'm no, explaining no which actually she didn't ask for
1: actually trophy wife did not say anything about that you don't have my to daughter that's my, that's my kid i know yeah, but yeah. you don't have to over explain things no it's okay
0: I don't, but I need to.
1: <laughs> fun story. And Jonah will Jonah this out later. Uh, fun story this, this weekend in, in Fargo at one of our shows. Uh, I over explained something to him and he's like, wait, is this how you feel when I do this to you? Yes. Yes. It sucks, doesn't it? It's not very fun. So, <sighs> it's nice. It's,
0: it's good to be informative. <laughs> I'm anyway, down with it.
1: Anyway. All right. Five stars. Uh, Jen K2-2. I've attended two live tapings now, and your realness is awesome. I appreciate that and your connection with the audience. Your passion for telling and research is apparent. I also love that you don't get too long-winded. Wow, thank you. And (laughs) and off on tangents about the stories like some of the other true crime podcasts out there. I'm excited for you both and can't wait to hear your future podcasts. Keep up the great work. Wow.
0: Cool. Thank you. That's exciting. Totally sweet. And again, yeah. if, hey, if you're using iTunes or any of that stuff, it takes, I don't know, 30 to 90 seconds of your life to give us a quick review on Spotify or iTunes. We appreciate it in a big, big way. And we want to let everyone know you can now support the show and get Midwest murder merchandise at tpublic.com forward slash stores forward slash Midwest murder. So check it out. You'll see uh, the logo, some of our favorite phrases, and, and yeah, hey, so we're, taking for, we're taking for We too. are taking like, suggestions. too. If there's some funny shit Don said once <laughs> that you think should be on a t-shirt, <laughs> send us a message and maybe it'll happen. My we pers- can do it. My
1: personal favorite is the is the t-shirt that says nothing good, or there's nothing open after the only, legs thing, hospitals. The only, thing, the only thing open after midnight are legs and hospitals. That's my favorite t-shirt. So you can also, guess what? You can get it.
0: Yeah. You can buy buy that on a t-shirt or a sticker or a mouse pad or all kinds of cool stuff at T public slash stores slash Midwest murder. You can also support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest murder. And that's just a cool, like, it's like a tipping service, guys. At the end of the day, it helps fund what we do. It helps fund uh, podcast research, the books we got to buy, the files that we got to request, the travel that we sometimes have to take for, uh, for for getting, for getting the information. There's so much data that we need oftentimes, and you got to physically show up. Somewhere to get these documents. Right. And it's anyways, that helps us. It's buymeatcoffee.com and forward it's slash a, it's, Midwest it's Murder.
1: Actually, a common question of you know, how do we pay for those things? How do we buy the case files? Because you know, papers. Mostly cheap. our
0: day jobs. It, right. That <laughs> no. helps.
1: Um, but this is and this is our answer to that. So just a little little explanation.
0: Today we're heading back to nineteen fifty-seven. It was a pretty cool year. WAMO released The Frisbee in 1957. That was the official release of the Frisbee. I love it. I'm a Frisbee player. I and I thought that was just awesome. It. Can you believe 1957? That was it, the Frisbee. The Bust- USSR Wild. launches Sputnik One, thus inaugurating the Space Age and the Space Race. Also in 1957, the most popular f- television show, American Bandstand, made its national debut.
1: You can, uh, you can dig yourself out of this hole if you can tell me who the host was.
0: Oh, American Bandstand? Yeah. No idea. Oh. Yeah. I thought we didn't do math or trivia. Crowd? Yeah. Anybody? Nothing. Nobody.
1: Dick Clark. Dick Clark. Yes. There we go. He's still in trouble, this but you're still, not. Yep. This guy's our
0: trivia winner of the night. <laughs> in 1957, federal troops were deployed by President Eisenhower when authorities in Little Rock, Arkansas refused to integrate their schools. He stated, quote, The federal constitution will be upheld by me by every means at my command. The final new episode of the classic television comedy, I Love Lucy, aired on CBS. And in 1957, Too Much was the number one song of the year, a song by Elvis Presley. Best picture winner was The Bridge on the River Kwai. And the number one movie in 1957 was The Ten Commandments.
1: Do you know who the star of I Love Lucy was? Uh,
0: no. No. Lucille Ball? Is that
1: it? <laughs> yes.
0: Am I in there? Yeah.
1: That was it, an did easy I get one. it? That was an easy one.
0: No, I, I had to reach. <laughs> Perhaps no era in American history is treated with more sentimental nostalgia than the 1950s. When we think about the 50s, images of poodle skirts and sock hops in the gym spring to mind. Big candy-colored American cars cruising down newly built interstate highways. Smiling, carefree nuclear families living in brand new suburban homes filled with every gadget imaginable, including, increasingly, a television set that shows programs like Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, and I Love Lucy, Gunsmoke, all of which reinforce the notion that the 1950s in America, well, they're the 50s in America that are happy days. But it's not happy days for everyone in America in the 50s. Although the era may be described as one of prosperity, it's also one of paranoia. There's prosperity fueled by a booming post-war economy. The factories that during World War II had pumped out tanks and airplanes and bullets and bombs 24-7 now pump out cars and refrigerators and lawnmowers and lots of people have money to buy them. The Federal Housing Authority makes home loans easy to get, especially for veterans, and vast tracts of suburbia spring up to meet the growing demand for single-family homes. An emerging space race puts a keen focus on public education, and millions of students at both K-12 and college levels benefit from accessibility to and improvement of educational institutions across the country. But this prosperity is not available to everyone. Even though the economy is generally in good shape, and even though factories are near peak output, supply does not always meet demand, and Americans suffer anxiety about inflation. The dream of the single-family home isn't available to everyone. Returning black veterans are systemically excluded from FHA loans, and the federal government and construction and real estate businesses enforce redlining policies that keep them out of many suburbs. The Supreme Court rules in Brown versus Topeka, the Board of Education, in 1954 that schools must be desegregated. But this is a long and arduous process. By no means do blacks and whites have the same access to quality of education at this time. Americans also suffer great anxiety over atomic weapons and the prospect of nuclear war the 1950s saw the first wave of the Cold War and fear of the Soviet Union's nuclear capabilities fuel virulent anti-communism in America. This anti-communism comes to a head in the McCarthy hearings in 54. In short order, this hysterical fear of communism and communists prompts a fear of and disdain for anyone who is in any way different. Conformity becomes the order of the day, and anyone who looks different, talks different, thinks different is susceptible to targeting, bullying, cruel reformation, even ostracization. Conformity, however, almost always foments rebellion. And so it's, so it is in the 50s. In the arts, we see beat literature and abstract expressionists pushing hard against the stultifying numbness of conformity. Rock and roll music begins to take over the airwaves, radio and television fanning the flames of teenage and parental panic. Rock and roll is deemed the devil's music, igniting a moral panic in America. Adults are afraid that their children will become juvenile delinquents and that the road to hell is paved with pop culture, rock music, comic books, and drive-in restaurants. Perhaps no one in pop culture during this time personifies the juvenile delinquent so clearly as the actor James Dean, in his most celebrated film, Rebel Without a Cause, came out in 1955. One of the first movies to emphasize the growing generation gap between parents and children. Dean's portrayal of troubled teenager Jim Stark is everything parents of teenagers in the 50s are afraid of. And according to some, Dean, as stark greased-up pompadour hair, cigarettes rolled in the sleeve of his white t-shirt, baggy jeans, and biker jacket, becomes the model for all rebels soon to come. In Lincoln, Nebraska, in 1957, it's one of the hundreds of microcosms of the American 50s. Here, too, prosperity and paranoia live in uneasy proximity. Some in Lincoln live in neighborhoods like the Country Club section, an affluent neighborhood of wide tree-lined streets and large, gracious homes built on ample lots that wrap around the Lincoln Country Club. Residents here are industrialists, bankers, lawyers, and doctors. They drive shiny new cars and send their children to private schools. Other neighborhoods in Lincoln, like the Belmont neighborhood, are not so nice, their residents not so well-educated and not so well-off. These are blue-collar neighborhoods where mechanics and laborers, truck drives, and factory workers live and raise their families. There are no fancy new cars in these neighborhoods, no country clubs, and children are lucky if they graduate from 8th grade. It is in such a neighborhood that Charles Starkweather, the third of seven children, is born and raised. Charlie, as he is called by most, is a small kid, a bantam rooster of a kid with fiery red hair. His family may be poor, but Charlie is raised with good manners. And people in the neighborhood like him. They consider him a good kid. But when Charlie starts school, everything changes. Charlie is born with genuvarum, a birth defect that causes severe bow-leggedness. He also has a slight speech impediment. He is, frankly, not very bright. He's got an IQ of 86, the normal range is from 90 to 110, so school is really difficult for him. He is also practically blind. His vision is about 20-200, which further complicates learning. Bowlegged, considered less than smart and practically blind in 1950s America, Charlie Starkweather is ground zero for bullying. All of Charlie's physical and mental disabilities make him a prime target for that bullying. And and by the time he's in high school, he's turned into a pretty mean kid with almost zero self-esteem. In high school, he excels at one subject, gym. He's tough, wiry, and strong. Attributes he's honed in dozens of fights with other kids, even knife fights. As his friend Bob Von Busch says about him, quote, he could be the kindest person you'd ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of of a lot of fun to be around, too. Everything was just one big joke to him. But he had this other side. He could be mean as hell. Cruel, too. If he saw some poor guy on the street who was bigger than he was, better looking, or better dressed, he'd try to take the poor bastard down to his size. End quote.
1: So basically, bullying bullying has made him a really fun guy.
0: Yeah, and he might have a little bit of that like like as the short man syndrome as as has been known and and yeah, if he's targeted for bullying, you got red hair. Well, I got gonna, a, I got a cousin with red hair, was picked on his whole life.
1: It's going to alter your personality. I mean, All when, of it. when you're when you're bullied, like it like yep. it clearly does, you know, there's I think there's studies. In
0: 1955, when Charlie is 17 years old, he sees the James Dean movie <laughs> Rebel Without a Cause, and suddenly Charlie has a role model. He begins to comb his hair like Dean slicked back and piled high, begins to dress like Dean, dungarees and black leather jacket, pointy-toed cowboy boots, and most importantly, he starts to believe he has found something to aim for. In Dean's character in Rebel Without a Cause, Charlie sees another tormented teenager, another guy just like him. The next year, Bob Von Bush introduces an 18-year-old Charlie to his 13-year-old sister-in-law, Carol Fugati. Carol is a pretty girl described as mature for her age. She's also quick to anger and also not considered the bright, the brightest as she had failed several grades in elementary school. Despite the fact that Carol is below, way below the age of consent, the two are instantly and intensely smitten with one another. As one of their biographers puts it, Carol was impressed by Charlie's, quote, cars, his toughness, his looks, and, in spite of his poverty, the way he could give her almost anything she wanted. Charlie said that Carol meant more to him than anything had before. Without her, he would be thrust back into the world he hated so much. Carol almost even made him stop hating himself. He saw himself as reflected in her eyes, and he thought he looked good.
1: Okay, well, that doesn't sound horrible. I mean, he found somebody who, you know, loved him. believed in him, yeah. There's likely a codependency problem in there somewhere, but I mean.
0: Codependency seems to be like a real issue in a lot of these Mm -hmm. situations. It gets gets dark. Childhood trauma. Charlie thinks the sun rises and sets on Carol, and he will do almost anything to impress her, including a monumentally dumb decision he makes in his senior year in high school. He drops out of school and takes a job at the Western Union newspaper warehouse solely because the warehouse is near the junior high school where Carol is a student so that he can be with her every day after school. I
1: forgot about that. I forgot. I didn't. uh, Can we back that up? Because I forgot how young she was. It's easy to
0: forget. Yeah. She's 14. She's 14. And they're madly in love. And he... Is dropping yeah. out of school to live by her I and feel, be with her I after school. I feel very icky that I even was like, oh, yeah.
1: well, that's sweet. It's not yeah. sweet. I take that back like a lot. Oh, my god! Understand?
0: Ugh. Innocent mistake. Carol's parents don't like Charlie. Charlie's parents <laughs> don't like Carol. Why,
1: Why? Why don't <laughs> well, they like Charlie? Whatever could they have. Weird. Yes.
0: <laughs> Charlie's parents kick him out and he moves into a seedy rooming house. He quits the newspaper warehouse and takes a job as a garbage collector. It all feels very rebel without a cause. Except for one thing. Rebel Without a Cause is a movie. And the poverty and desperation that Charlie and Carol are caught in, that's real life. Charlie collects garbage all day in the wealthier neighborhoods of Lincoln. Day after day, he sees what he wants, but knows it's out of reach for him. Day after day, he spends time with Carol, wondering how he will ever be able to provide for her. And day after day, Charlie Starkweather grows more and more desperate as every desire frustrated by his poverty and his ignorance and his rage.
1: And his predatory behavior.
0: On November 30th, 1957, a bitter cold Nebraska day, Charlie goes to a service station in Lincoln where he tries to buy a stuffed toy dog for Carol on credit. The station attendant, Robert Colvert, Refuses to sell Charlie anything on credit and he leaves the station humiliated and furious. At 3 a.m. on December 1st, having stolen a 12-gauge shotgun from Bob Von Busch, Charlie returns to the service station to buy cigarettes. Culvert is still on duty. His pregnant wife no doubt sound asleep at home on that frigid Nebraska night. A few minutes later, Charlie goes back into the station and buys a pack of gum. Charlie sits in the car for a while. Nursing his humiliation like a bad hangover. Then he pulls a hunting cap over his instantly recognizable red hair, ties a bandana over his face, and returns to Culvert in the service station a third time. He orders Culvert to turn off the outside lights and to hand over all the money in the safe and in the cash register. Culvert tells Charlie that he can't open the safe. Only the owner knows the combination. But he hands over about 160 bucks in bills and coin from the register that Charlie stuffs in a canvas bag. Charlie then draws the 12 gauge shotgun on Culvert and force marches him out to the car, where he makes Culvert drive while he holds the shotgun to his head. Charlie asks Culvert drive out to a frozen dirt road called Superior Street. In the Sub-Zero pre-dawn cold, Charlie orders Culvert to get out of the car. Colvert instead turns on Charlie, goes for the shotgun which goes off during the scuffle and injures Colvert badly. There is stillness for a moment in that car, on that frozen dirt road, the sulfury stench of gunpowder hanging in the air, the ragged breath of two desperate men the only sound, and then Robert Colvert begins to move again, and Charles Starkweather puts this 12-gauge shotgun to the back of Colvert's head and fires.
1: And his wife is still sleeping at home. Yeah. Mm.
0: Charlie dumps Culvert's lifeless body on the frozen dirt road in the icy Nebraska night, drives home, and goes to sleep. Over the next few days... Hang on. Wait, wait, oh, wait. Wait, yep. wait, wait, wait.
1: So he just tosses him out the window or mm. the door Mostly, and then just yep. and then just goes to bed. That's yeah,
0: it. That's it. Call it a night. This guy uh, was mean to me when I wanted to... Buy a teddy bear, so I'm going to blow his brains out with a shotgun. That was kind of the decision. That was seems, the process. nice. Over the next few days, Charlie makes several interesting moves. First, he throws the shotgun off South Street Bridge into Salt Creek. The next day, Monday, December 2nd, he goes out to a local thrift store, buys several changes of clothing for himself, using some of the money from the, the robbery. Later in the week, on December 7th, he paints his blue 1949 Ford black and changes the tires on the car, both to avoid anyone identifying the car as having been at the service station that night and also to avoid any tire tracks on the ground. Throughout the week, he makes sure he is seen around town, including at the very service station he robbed, not wanting his absence to arouse any suspicion. All of these little tricks and plays the new wardrobe, the paint and tires, maintaining his routine—all learned from comic books and detective magazines. There's no doubt about it. Charles Starkweather is a juvenile delinquent of the highest order.
1: I don't. I don't really like that you didn't, or that you called him unintelligent. Because, I mean, if he's able to figure that stuff out, he's he's uh, he's got his shit together a little bit.
0: By the merits of the grades of the education system, I mean, yeah, yeah, that was just where he was. Put in. By early January, things are coming apart at the seams for Charlie and Carol. So we're a month forward. Nobody attached him to this murder whatsoever. Charlie loses his job as a garbage collector, but he continues to lavish money and gifts on Carol. Remember, 160 bucks would stretch a long ways back then. By January 10th, he has failed to pay his rent at the rooming house and he's sleeping in his car. His parents tell me spending too much time with Carol. Carol's parents, Marion and Velda Bartlett, have become openly hostile towards Charlie, and they try to forbid Carol from seeing him.
1: Uh, again, are you surprised?
0: No, not I mean, one bit. she's a child. She's a child. You're a red-headed maniac.
1: Stop with the redhead. My my daughter is redhead. Like, it's just my because cousin he's redhead is, doesn't mean he's a maniac.
0: Just, well, no, but he is one.
1: Well, he's a maniac, but yeah. don't,
0: yeah. Stress and distress builds for the young couple. They argue a lot, but the attraction between them remains strong, even irresistible. But on January 21st, things begin to crack. Charlie borrows a 22 rifle from his brother, saying he is going hunting with his friend Marion. He arrives at the Bartlett home around 1 in the afternoon and is greeted by Velda, who immediately begins arguing with him and beats him and slaps him and attacks his face. Charlie leaves but returns about 15 minutes later. This time, Marion takes him on, literally kicking his ass out the door. Furious, Charlie drives away a second time, but now he's developing a plan. He stops at a local grocery store and makes a phone call from a payphone to Marion's employer, Wollaston Brothers Transportation Company. Charlie tells them that Marion is ill and will not be into work for a few days.
1: Okay, I take that. I take that back. I, I mean, he's he's pretty smart, and then he's not very smart. He's pretty smart, and then he's not very smart because
0: it's I, very hit and miss.
1: You could call in sick for I'm going to I'm going to call in sick for you like someday. Like, I'm sorry, Jonah's sick today. He can't make it in.
0: This guy's going to be sick. You know, trust me. Gosh. Around 3 p.m., Charlie returns to the Bartlett house. At this time, Marion, Velda and their three-year-old daughter, Betty Jean, are all at home. No. Charlie, Marion and Velda resume fighting. Velda and Charlie exchange blows. Then Charlie and Marion mix it up. Charlie goes for his loaded rifle and Marion goes for a claw hammer. And this probably goes without saying, but you just can't show up to a gunfight with a hammer. When Marion tries to attack Charlie with a hammer, Charlie shoots him point blank in the head. He then calmly reloads his rifle, turns on Velda and shoots her in the head. Finally, he turns to the hysterical toddler, Betty Jean. No,
1: no, 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 no. He does
0: smashes her face with the butt of his rifle and then stabs her to death with a kitchen knife
1: oh.
0: at last everything is quiet in this house of chaos and mayhem at three thirty p.m carol arrives home from school she opens the door of her childhood home to find her mother stepfather and stepsister bloody and murdered and her boyfriend holding the murder weapons No one knows what happened between Charlie and Carol in that house in that moment. No one knows if Carol was a terrified hostage or a willing accomplice. But what plays out over the next six days defies belief.
1: Well, I can't imagine that because how old is Carol? Fourteen. Fourteen. So at at 14. You come home from
0: school and your boyfriend's killed your family. Yeah,
1: I can't imagine she's wowed. That's for sure.
0: The next morning, Carol's friend Bonnie stops by so they can walk to school together. Carol tells her that everyone in the house is sick with the flu. Later, she tacks a carefully handwritten note to the front door. It read, quote, No admittance. Five-day flu here. Stay away on doctor's orders. Three days later, Carol's sister and brother-in-law, Barbara, and Bob Von Busch arrive with their new baby, eager to show off the new addition to their family. Carol yells at them to stay away. But as the Von Busch family returns to the taxi that brought them, Carol runs out and pleads with them to stay away, to please, please stay away until Monday so no one will get hurt.
1: What? Why Monday? What's... I don't know.
0: I couldn't uh-huh. I couldn't tell you. Gravely concerned, Bob Von Busch and Charlie's brother Rodney returned to the Bartlett home around 8 p.m. that night, Again, Carol refuses to let them in. By now, worry and fear is blossoming, and Von Bush and Starkweather contact the Lincoln police and ask the police to pay a visit to the Bartlett home. The police arrive at the house around 10 p.m., but Carol manages to convince them there's a sickness, a flu in the house. She even sheepishly tells the officers that she hopes they don't get sick from getting too close to her. The officers leave. Believing all is well at the Bartlett home.
1: Oh, police work in the 50s. This is when they were like, you know, in the, you know, helping the firemen get the cat out of the tree. Like the way they're portrayed. Like, oh my gosh. I don't know. That, they, they, they weren't would ready never for this. fly today. They'd be like, let me talk to your parents. I don't right? care how sick I'd get. I don't
0: care. Show me an adult. Yeah. A full five days later, Carol's grandmother, Pansy Street, reports to the Lincoln police that she too has been denied entry to the house, and is convinced that something is very, very wrong. A radio call goes out to check on the house, but when officers again arrive on the scene, there's no answer to their knock. On the strength of not one, but two requests to check on the Bartlett's, the officers break in through a side window, and they discover a completely empty house.
1: So they took care of everything.
0: We'll see. The police call Carol's brother-in-law, Bob Von Bush, and tell him that the house is empty. No Marion, no Velda, no Betty Jean, and no Carol. No Charlie either. Still convinced that something is wrong, Bob and Rodney return to the Bartlett house later in the day to take a look at things themselves. They find essentially what the Lincoln police had reported, an empty house. But they decide to look a little further. There are outbuildings on the property—an old chicken coop and an out-of-service outhouse—and they want to take a look in both of those. But did they just
1: walk away, like, ah, uh, it's eh, fine, not a big deal? It, it sounds it's no like the deal.
0: police just like, yeah, those buildings back there. I mean, it was, it was the 50s, so yeah. I'm not like.
1: The house is empty, guys. Call it a day. I guess it's fine. Nobody answered.
0: Walking along a well-worn path to the chicken coop, Bob stumbles over an old box that had been used to haul trash out of the house. Bending over to move it out of the way, Bob recoils in silent horror. No. Inside the box, partially naked and frozen, lies the body of three-year-old Betty Jean Bartlett, her face bashed in and barely recognizable. No. Now aware that something is terribly wrong here, the two men rush to the chicken coop, where they discover the body of Marion Bartlett wrapped in newspaper and torn lime rags. In the outhouse, they find the final horror, the body of Velda Bartlett, hastily discarded and wrapped in rags. Von Bush and Starkweather call police, and the Bartlett home is immediately swarmed by officers and detectives. The ordinarily sleepy little capital city of Lincoln, Nebraska, has a mass murder on its hands, and all hell is about to break loose. It's now Monday, January twenty seventh. By the time police arrive at the Bartlett home, Charlie and Carol are long gone, fleeing the grisly scene to pick up his nineteen forty-nine Ford Hot Rod. So you're a potentially wanted murderer on the run. Don, what do you think is the most logical thing to do after acquiring your getaway vehicle?
1: Stop for a meal.
0: Or get away? Maybe just get away? You stop for a meal first. Don's Wait, having well, lunch.
1: Well, I mean, I guess I, I I took that as like, what would he do?
0: Yeah, no, it's
1: like I would I would probably. What's run the sensible
0: away. thing to do with your getaway vehicle? What? Well, getaway. Getaway. Yeah, I mean, if it's but in the name, what's he gonna do? Getaway. You're probably not far off.
1: Really? Did I guess it right?
0: Well, I mean, if you said getaway, you were sure as shit gonna be wrong. <laughs> so that's fair. So, although Starkweather has no way of knowing it. Police have yet to discover the bodies of the Bartlett family when he makes his escape, and he so he's got a, a lead on police. Oh, around twelve thirty that day, sure. they don't discover the bodies till the evening. So around twelve thirty that day, after getting the getaway vehicle, Starkweather stops, and he gets his car lifted on a grease rack to have the transmission adjusted by an old high school buddy.
1: Is that just to make sure that your gears shifted properly, like as you're you know running from the police, or like is it? I mean I
0: Your getaway hot rod's gotta be hot.
1: Well, I mean maybe he was planning ahead, but not I mean
0: Yeah. So no For just a minute, Carol is left alone while Charlie goes to the bathroom. She hastily writes a note that says Help police don't ignore and stuffs it in her pocket. Now we all know a getaway vehicle is no good without quality tires. So after getting the transmission oh, come on. fixed
1: really Yeah.
0: Charlie and Carol pop over to Tate's tire service station to get the tires all dialed in while eating cheeseburgers. I was not I said, far off. No, you weren't. Somebody's hungry. Carol is visibly in a state of shock, following Charlie through the restaurant with a vacant stare, not making any eye contact with anyone in the restaurant. She looks lost.
1: Okay. So I'm going to go back to what you said at the very beginning where you know nobody knew if she was an accomplice or a victim herself.
0: Seems I mean, to be some indication.
1: I hope that was sarcasm. Of, that was victim, sarcasm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because. If, if Yeah. She's a child and her family's just been murdered. Yeah. There's no way.
0: She's no way. She's in a bad, bad state. Yeah. By As mid- we all would be. Right. Unless you're Starkwell. Unless you're Charlie. By mid-afternoon. The getaway vehicle is finally functional, and the couple takes off in the direction of the old Meyer farm. Warmer than average temperatures following a wet, snowy winter make the farm roads unseasonably muddy, and Charlie gets the Ford stuck in the mud just a few hundred feet from the farmhouse.: oh, Not with
1: his new tires.
0: Yeah, Dang. New tires't do much good in the mud. Mm-hmm. As they approach the home of August Meyer, his dog greets them with loud, nonstop barking. August Meyer is an old family friend and the farmer recognizes Charlie right away and agrees to help haul the car out of the mud.
1: This is why you should always trust a dog. Always, Le- try- He knew what was going on.
0: Yeah. Leading the kids toward his barn, August Meyer never sees it coming. The close range headshot from the sawed off shotgun blast is instantly fatal. August Meyer's dog continues barking at Charlie as he drags the body into a backyard warehouse. After dumping the body... Charlie takes one more victim at the Meyer farm, mercilessly executing the dog because it won't (sighs) stop barking. He then ransacks the house and the two leave to push his Ford out of the mud. When Charlie and Carol return to their disabled car, they find it has already been pulled out of the mud. When Charlie was busy murdering August Meyers and his barking dog, local farmer Howard Ganucci has spied the mudbound hot rod. Knowing it's Charlie Starkweather's, Howard does what a good-hearted Midwesterner would do. He lends a helping hand. He hooks a chain up to Charlie's car, yanks it out of the mud, and then simply goes on his way, not even waiting for the car's owner to return, happy to have helped and not needing a thank you for having done a good deed. Ganucci's Midwestern humility is probably the only thing that saves him from being Starkweather's sixth murder victim. Charlie's feeling paranoid at this point and Carol watches from the passenger seat in fear as Charlie drives the hot rod with seemingly no direction, talking to himself as he drives. It's like he's slipping in and out of some internal conversation that sometimes manages to bubble its way out of his mouth. Suddenly, Charlie decides he overreacted at the Meyer house and tells Carol he thinks it's safe for them to return there. And stay on the return drive to August Meyers farm. Charlie's hot rod gets stuck in the mud again. Oh, okay. Is do you think it's bad driver? I, they, I, you
1: know what? He picked the wrong set of tires. Yeah, yeah. That, that, tired swi- that
0: tire switch, that tire switch wasn't wasn't the uh-huh. move.
1: He should have thrown some sandbags yeah. in the back of the vehicle and picked different tires. Yeah.
0: So they abandon the vehicle and start walking. And once again, on that muddy country road. Midwestern friendliness strikes. 17-year-old Robert Jensen and his 16-year-old sweetheart Carol King, out on date night, can't help but stop and offer Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugatti a ride. It isn't long before Midwest nice turns fatal for Robert and Carol. For reasons no one can discern, Charlie puts a gun to the back of Robert Jensen's head and orders him to drive them toward Lincoln. A short while into the drive, Charlie tells Jensen to pull over at the ruins of an old schoolhouse. He forces the couple out of the car at gunpoint, directing them toward the storm cellar beneath the schoolhouse. Carol looks on helplessly, wanting to flee, but there's nowhere for her to go. A minute later, Carol hears the first gunshot. In the storm cellar, Charlie Starkweather has executed Robert Jensen with a bullet to the head. He then turns on Carol King, forces her to undress, and sexually assaults her before ending her life just as he has Jensen's with a bullet to the head.
1: So he can't just be like a murderous bastard. He's, he mm. also has to be, you know, He's, really live up to that predatory behavior.
0: All of nice. it. All of it. By now, it's 9 p.m. And Charlie and Carol get back on the road toward Lincoln, now driving Jensen's vehicle. Charlie's feeling confident and cocky in a fresh new getaway vehicle.
1: How long he, before they get stuck in the mud again?
0: Whew. Stay off them back roads. (laughs) He knows the police will not be looking for him in Robert Jensen's 1950 Ford, nor will they expect him to return to Lincoln, the scene of four of his murders. But that's exactly what he does, boldly driving past the police station and the Bartlett home. But when he sees police at the Bartlett house, Starkweather decides it's really time to get out of town. The couple drives out of Lincoln. Heading west with a vague notion of driving to the state of Washington where Starkweather's brother lives. They make it as far as Hastings, Nebraska. But when Charlie's eyelids droop heavily with sleep, he decides they should turn back to Lincoln. It's a few hours before sunrise when he parks the stolen 1950 Ford in the wealthy country club neighborhood of Lincoln, Nebraska.
1: Okay, so you don't, you don't go the opposite way. You don't go towards Washington. You go back to Lincoln because you You started toward Washington. You got to catch some shut eye. And so you're just going to start over. Yeah. Like that's.
0: Yep. Later that day, Tuesday, January 28th, just after lunchtime, a patrolman spots Charlie's hot rod at the Meyer farm and Charlie's 49 Ford is unmistakable. Black. There's no front grill. There's missing back windows. The patrolman is given strict instructions to wait for backup. Within an hour, a team of 30 troopers outfitted in riot gear and armed with tear gas bombs converge on the farm and surround the car. But when they swarm the vehicle, it's obviously abandoned. Their focus then turns to the Meyer farmhouse, assuming the couple must be holed up inside. Anxious and curious Area farmers and onlookers gather outside the Meyer farm. The voice of assistant police chief masters booms across the farmstead. And Don, I shit you not, he hollers out. We know you're in there. We'll give you five minutes to come out with your hands up. I got a level with you. I really just thought that only happened in the movies. But that's word for word what this guy said.
1: Well, this wasn't everyday stuff.
0: I mean, I know, you know, I just, I've it's like, I've heard that phrase a million times and it was always like some sort of like comically delivered in a, in a, in a cliche movie format. But here I am real life. And a guy did that. And, and that's probably where it comes from.
1: And I have a question, but, uh, how long is it like, okay. So the five minutes you count down, what's yeah. going to happen? What's going to happen in 1954? What are you going to do? 57. 57. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. What's going to happen when the five minutes get, get down there to nothing and he doesn't come out. Well, then let's, what?
0: Let's find out.
1: Okay. I promise that that was not set up. I was legit. No, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I know.
0: <laughs> the five minute countdown is agonizing. A windy bite of anticipation swirls in the air as troopers surround the building. They spread across the farm, taking strategic covered positions. They know Charlie Starkweather is a crack shot and a cold blooded killer. But They're they don't, taking they don't even know no happened, chances. Though. What?
1: They don't even know all of it yet, though. Not all like, of it. The they know part.
0: about the, the one family. They know about the Bartlett yeah. family is all. But he is known in the community as being a crack shot with a rifle. When the five minutes pass with no movement from inside the farmhouse, troopers quickly shift forward, moving from tree to tree. Assistant Chief Masters gives the signal and troopers lob tear gas grenades through a second story window. Eight gas grenades in all are tossed into the house. Another five minutes pass. Still no movement. Assistant Chief Masters no doubt thinks it's time to lay siege to the home, capture Charles Starkweather, and call it a day. Little did he know, today is not that day. Troopers cover their faces with bandanas and rags before rushing the house. Sergeant Gerald Tesh kicks in the door to a washroom out back and makes a grisly discovery. Lying on the washroom floor is the frozen body of old Gus Meyer. Most of his head has been decimated by a shotgun blast, but it's unmistakably the kind old farmer who let Charles Starkweather hunt his land for many years. The discovery of August Meyer's mutilated body in Starkweather's abandoned hot rod puts a disturbing thought into the mind of one of the farmers in the mob of onlookers gathered at the scene. The farmer tells a trooper that he recalls hearing gunshots the night before, out by the old abandoned schoolhouse. A search party is quickly organized, In the discovery of the two teenage sweethearts, Robert Jensen and Carol King, in the storm cellar, brings the murder total to seven. Seven murders and now the quiet Midwestern landscape of Lincoln, Nebraska has become a prairie of panic as hysteria and fear take over. Within 30 minutes of the horrific discovery at the farm, an APB is issued, stretching across the entirety of Nebraska into Wyoming, Iowa, Kansas, and Southern Colorado. Police set up roadblocks on the borders along the major highways and in many of the major cities. Communities are put on high alert. Mass confusion sets in for police as groups of armed vigilantes take it upon themselves to start patrolling the countryside. The Bennett hardware store completely sells out of guns, bullets, and knives. The news of the discovery of seven murder victims in and around the quaint and quiet city of Lincoln is harrowing for the people of Nebraska. Killers on the loose every hour of every day radio voices pound the dread alarm over the airwaves members of the national guard are deployed in cities across nebraska they were escorting groups of children to school children escorted to school by armed guards the terrifying tale of two teenage murderers on the loose spreads slowly at first but once it's out it takes off like wildfire, and it's all anyone can think or talk about. And while no one in Lincoln knows it, the red-headed, legged killer Charlie Starkweather is hiding right beneath the nose of law enforcement, prowling the upscale country club neighborhood for a place to hide out. Just after sunrise, hours before the fruitless siege at the Meyer farm, Charlie and Carol descend upon the stately residence of C. Lower Ward on South 24th Street. Charlie bangs on the door, rifle in hand. Lillian Fensel, the ward's maid, accompanied by a barking dog, answers the door. Charlie puts the gun in her face and starts giving her orders, but he quickly realized the terrified domestic servant is deaf. He writes out instructions for her. Telling her first to put the damn dog in a bathroom, then to gather together everyone in the house. Mrs. Clara Ward emerges from upstairs in her robe and she's ordered to sit at the table. With the household locked down, Charlie waves Carol inside. Mrs. Ward manages to keep her cool and even makes Charlie Starkweather breakfast. Carol falls asleep in the library while Charlie keeps a watchful eye on the two women, his gun never far from reach. After making him breakfast and cleaning up the dishes, Mrs. Ward convinces Charlie to let her go upstairs and change out of her robe and into more presentable clothes. When she doesn't come back down, Charlie goes upstairs looking for her. He opens the door to her bedroom and bam! Clara Ward opens fire on Charles Starkweather with a twenty-two pistol. She misses and, panicked, she starts to flee. As she does, Charlie whips a knife at her with striking accuracy, catching Clara Ward square in the back with the knife. She falls unconscious and he carries her back into the bedroom. Charlie goes back downstairs, arms Carol with a gun, and orders her to guard the maid. Now with his rifle in hand, Charlie returns to the upstairs bedroom to find Mrs. Ward struggling to use the phone. Another dog stands in the doorway, snarling at Charlie, blocking his access. He makes quick work of the animal with the butt of his gun, ruthlessly snapping the dog's neck. With that dirty work done, he ties Clara Ward to the bed and ransacks the upstairs bedrooms. The day wears on, and while Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugati are... In Lincoln holding Clara Ward and her maid hostage, police are just now swarming the Meyer farmstead and they have truly no real direction, leads or clues as to where the two teenage murderers truly are. By mid-afternoon, the newspaper arrives. Charlie Starkweather, the slow-witted mean little high school dropout, is front-page news. Charlie takes the time to cut the stories and pictures of him of himself out of the paper. Comfortably enjoying his afternoon in the elegant Ward home, while panic over his killing spree spreads throughout the community. Clairou, yep, what?
1: That's where he gets his validation from. Like I made the front at, page. Look at me. Look what I did.
0: It's gross. Ugh. It's sick. Clara Ward's husband. C. Lauer Ward is a prominent businessman in Lincoln. He's the president of both the Capital Bridge Company and the Capital Steel Company. He's an important man and he's well-connected. In fact, At the very moment his wife is taken hostage, C. Lauer Ward is in a conference call with the governor of Nebraska, upset and fuming about the killing spree happening in his own community.
1: In his own own home at that point. Yeah.
0: Ouch. By the time Ward wraps up his business for the day, it's after 6 p.m., worried and anxious about the terrible killings happening around him, he arrives home. Only to be ambushed by Charlie Starkweather in his own kitchen. The two men fight and struggle. Starkweather manages to overpower Ward and throws him down the basement stairs. Charlie charges after Ward down the basement stairs. The two men clash again. This time, Ward manages to throw Charlie off and run back up the stairs. But Charlie has the rifle, and see, Lauer Ward, no matter how prominent no matter how important and no matter how rich, could not escape the fatal bullet, Charlie shot into his back. Now worried that the sound of a gunshot might bring unwanted attention to the Ward home, Charlie hurries up to tie up loose ends. Clara Ward and Lillian Fansel. Both women are already bound and tied. Mrs. Ward is already gravely wounded when Charlie sets into his butchery. He's a seasoned killer now, Charlie stabs Clara Ward all over her head and body, and he knifes Lillian Fensel more than a dozen times in her stomach and chest. Barely an hour later, around 7 p.m., Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugati, loaded with jewelry and other valuables from the Ward house, get into C. Lauer Ward's 1956 Packard, drive onto Highway 34, and head for Washington State. Charlie drives straight through the night— falls asleep at the wheel, hits the ditch, and nearly wrecks the car before pulling off the road to rest. They're not far from the Wyoming border.
1: Well, at least he didn't turn back around to Lincoln, I guess.
0: (sighs) On Wednesday, January 29th, when C. Lauer Ward misses a board meeting the next morning, his cousin and business partner, Fred Ward, is decidedly uneasy. Unable to reach his cousin by midday, he decides to check in on him at home. It's just after noon that day when he discovers the mutilated bodies at the beautiful country clubhouse. When word gets out, the terror and pandemonium in Lincoln reach unprecedented heights. Within hours, every hardware store in the 110,000-person community has completely sold out of guns, ammunition, bows, arrows, and knives. Martial law is declared and more than 200 National Guardsmen are called to the city. They patrol the streets in jeeps and 20 men surround the Bank of Lincoln in a defensive position after rumor spreads that Starkweather planned to rob the bank. Lancaster County Sheriff Merle C. Carnop appears on television in an emergency broadcast from the courthouse and calls for assistance from his posse. Citizens in the area take this as an open invitation to join the manhunt. And over 100 men of all ages show up. Carnop isn't ready for this. And when the crowd starts getting restless, Carnop stands on a desk inside the courthouse and performs a mass deputization of everyone in the room. What? Oh, yeah. Over a 100 people, men, boys, in between... Deputized. Boom. Done.
1: Here's my four-year-old. He's really good with a bow and arrow. Deputy. <laughs> That's, like, yeah. really?
0: You're in. The just, n- just
1: the kind of guy we were looking for. The like,
0: the oh now, my gosh. The now deputized vigilante mob begins patrolling the streets while other citizen snipers take up positions on rooftops throughout Lincoln.
1: Okay. The liability in this is like <laughs> is, is huge. No, it I, really I mean,
0: is. It's, it's crazy. Yes. Good for them. They were defending their community. though. Like, I I get it. it It's just crazy. It's
1: it's mass panic. If I stood
0: on this table and just deputized everybody up in here, I could only do that and make you all podcasters. That's not about the power. You don't actually. Yeah,
1: you don't have that. But I I mean, I I get the sheer panic. Right. I mean, and. and,
0: Well, just wait till you hear this. Oh, gosh. Okay. When police cruisers spot a black Packard speeding through town, they give chase and a 15-minute pursuit ensues only to end in frustration upon discovering it was just some shit-for-brains lawyer pulling what he thought was a really good prank on law enforcement. He's
1: lucky he didn't get knifed by a 10-year-old. Yeah. Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm sorry, deputy 10-year-old.
0: Deputy 10-year-old's like, going to knife you, bro. Oh, my gosh. Another sighting near the University of Nebraska ends with an innocent student being chased by a mob and held at gunpoint in his apartment until his identity is verified.
1: Again, the liability here. Like, oh my gosh, this is, I'm like, my heart is palpitating here.
0: Hundreds of phone calls pour into the sheriff's office and police department. So many calls came in so quickly, the circuits overloaded and phone lines shut down. It was literally batshit crazy.
1: I get it. was 1957. 1957. I, I, I get it. I get it. I mean, and, and boy, oh boy, have we learned a lot in, you know, 75 years. Wow. That, really? It feels yeah. like 20 years ago, but even though I wasn't even born in the 70s, but still. that That's a, that's, like, it, how is this even possible? It, yeah. Oh
0: my gosh. The, it's 100,000. This is, you know, we're in North Dakota, so like, that's the city of Fargo. Right. Just just arming everybody and snipers on the on the towers. And yeah. And, so
1: and dear God, let's hope you let's hope you knife the right one. <sighs> and, and if you don't, eh, it's well, fine.
0: Citizens that, of Lincoln at this point, they have zero confidence in police.
1: I Pe- wonder why. I, I mean, oh, my gosh.
0: People, well, it's probably
1: not, It's probably because they haven't solved anything, not because they not, deputized yeah. everybody. But Right. You know.
0: It's not the mass deputization right. <laughs> or the vigilantes <laughs> right. or the snipers. Right. People leave their garages open and they leave the keys in their cars so that if Charlie Starkweather comes to your house, he can just take your car and go. Business comes to a screeching halt as families bunker down to protect their own. Local businesses and politicians, including the mayor of Lincoln and the governor of Nebraska, offer cash rewards totaling nearly $2,000 for the capture of Charlie Starkweather.
1: Which when you're making $160 a week, $2,000 is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a fair amount. You couldn't so much as blink in the city without hearing about the lunatic, bow legged killer, Charlie Red Starkweather. While things reach a fever pitch in Lincoln, Charlie and Carol arrive in the tiny town of Douglas, Wyoming, well aware news of their murderous rampage was spreading throughout the Midwest, along with radio warnings to be on the lookout for the dangerous couple. As they drive through Douglas, they feel as if all eyes are on them. Charlie doesn't deal well with the pressure. He mutters and rambles as he drives, seemingly unaware of Carol next to him in the car as he has a conversation with himself. They quickly pass through Douglas, get on Highway 87, and drive toward Casper, Wyoming. Fifteen miles out of town, Charlie spots a Buick parked on the side of the road and he pulls in behind the car. He gets out, knocks on the window, waking the sleeping occupant, a traveling shoe salesman named Merle Collison. Unlock the door, Charlie demands. Why, asks er- asks Merle. We're gonna trade cars, Charlie tells him. Merle refuses, but before he can gather his wits and speed off, Charlie grabs his twenty-two pump rifle and shoots the window out. As Collison rears back, Charlie reaches through the broken window, unlocks the door, opens it, and fires seven point-blank shots into Merle Collison. He then shoves the bleeding body of Merle Collison aside and orders Carol into the back seat. Charlie tries to speed off, but in his frazzled state, he can't figure out the release for the handbrake. Coming upon the two cars on the side of the road from the opposite direction, Sinclair oilman Joe Sprinkle figures he better stop to see if anyone needs help. Sprinkle parks and starts walking toward Charlie, whose back is turned. Suddenly, Charlie whips around, brandishing the rifle. Charlie orders Sprinkle to come help release the handbrake. As Sprinkle makes his way over, the f- he first notices Carol sobbing in the back seat, and then the bloody body of Merle Collison in the passenger seat. Fight or flight kicks in. Survival instinct takes over, and in a massive act of courage, Joe Sprinkle lunges at Charlie, grabbing for his gun. The conflict spills onto the highway. Joe Sprinkle was in a crazy fight for his life. Seconds pass by like an eternity as Sprinkle struggles to wrench the gun away from Charlie. The teenaged maniac was gaining the upper hand. In that fateful moment, Wyoming Deputy Sheriff William Romer comes upon the scene. When Deputy Romer pulls over, Carol bolts from the back of the Buick, screaming, He's going to kill me! He's crazy! He's just killed a man! Meanwhile... Charlie jumps into the Packard and flees the scene. Carol identifies him as Charlie Starkweather to Romer, and he radios it into Douglas so they can set up a roadblock. But Romer waits before pursuing, so as to be sure Starkweather doesn't try to double back. After a few moments, he gives chase with Carol Fugati in the passenger seat of his patrol car.
1: Okay, I don't want to Monday morning quarterback that, but I'm going to... What if what if she what if she were a bad guy?
0: Right. And he didn't seem it, like it though.
1: What, well, yeah, but I can I can act hysterical right here if you'd like. Oh. It's like the scene in I Bet Harry you'd be Met good Sally. At that. Hey, what? Like, dude, you, you oh, know, fans, you're actually, that's kind of, a, you're that's actually, a compliment. You're actually kind of pissing me off tonight. Like, oh. first you tell me I need to like trim my nose hair, and then you tell me I can be hysterical. <laughs> I did not tell
0: you to trim <laughs> your nose hair. But anyway, I think I'm we just all kidding. do it. Yeah, I'm just
1: kidding. I, I, I'm not mad at you. But seriously, I mean. It's, it's a, it's, it's a concern. I would have left her on well, the side of the road.
0: I, some, some panicked poor girl runs in and says he's going to kill me. Like, I get it, but things are happening fast. I get you it. Know? Yeah, like, I get it. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's, yeah. S-
0: Starkweather has no intention of being caught. He's traveling at over 80 miles an hour when Douglas police chief Robert Ainsley and Converse County Sheriff Earl Heflin spot him about six miles outside of Douglas. Starkweather's lead on law enforcement instantly diminishes when he gets caught in small town traffic, allowing Chief Ainsley to get up close, close enough to take aim. Bam, bam, bam. From the passenger seat of Ainsley's patrol car, Sheriff Heflin draws his 38 caliber revolver and fires multiple shots at the Packard's tires. The sudden roar of gunfire causes people in the streets of Douglas to scatter in all directions, taking cover where possible. Panic drivers swerve onto the sidewalk. A screeching clash of metal rings out when Chief Ainsley smashes into the Packard, hooking the bumper for a moment only to have it rip loose. Charlie Starkweather, desperate not to get caught, pushes that 1956 Packard to its limits, hitting 120 miles an hour on the open highway Mm -hmm. after separating from the patrol car. But police chief Robert Ainsley stays in hot pursuit, matching Starkweather's speed. Sheriff Heflin swaps his revolver for a .30-30 semi-automatic carbine rifle and takes aim, bam, 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 bam. Heflin unleashes a fury of 10 bullets, shattering the back window of the Packard, but then loses sight of the big black car in a dip in the highway. When the two law enforcement agents come out of the dip, Chief Ainsley slams on the brakes, bringing the patrol car to a screeching halt. The black Packard is stopped in the middle of the highway. Ainsley and Heflin take a defensive position behind the doors of the patrol car, about a hundred feet from Starkweather and the Packard. Tension is thick in the air. Heflin knows he's facing an armed and deadly killer. He shouts, ''Get out of the car with your hands up!'' Nothing. No movement in the Packard. ''Get out of the car!'' he yells again. Finally, the door opens, and Charlie Starkweather slowly gets out of the Packard. His ear is bleeding from the shattered glass. Crimson stains soak his shirt. Starkweather keeps his back to the lawman. Put your hands up, Heflin yells. When Charlie refuses, Heflin fires a warning shot. When Starkweather goes for something in his in the waist of his jeans, BAM! Another warning shot from Heflin that hits close to Starkweather's feet. Get your hands up, Heflin yells again. This time, Starkweather responds by slowly tucking in his shirt before finally laying on the highway, casually succumbing, suddenly but fully, to his arrest.
1: Tucking in his shirt today would have gotten him shot.
0: Yeah, probably.
1: I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there's no I doubt no. He, he got like
0: three warning shots, two of them at his feet.
1: Those wouldn't have happened either. I mean, if you're, if you're putting your hands in your pocket after you've been warned a lot... And then you start tucking in your shirt like an asshole, you're gonna get shot. Because Total there's there is there is no so cocky. Yeah, yeah, for real. And I mean, there's there's no guarantee he doesn't have a, a gun. No. You know, it's a threat. Like it's a it's it's a concern.
0: This person has killed, I mean, he's killed ten people. En route to the Douglas jail, Charlie Starkweather complains his cuffs are too tight and threatens not to tell them anything if his cuffs aren't loosened. I just Pisses me off that he starts whining immediately in captivity.
1: Well, but are you surprised? Of course he's gonna whine. Like he's he is it's
0: he also tells Heflin and Ainsley to quote, go easy on the girl. She had nothing to do with any of it. Still, his cocksure attitude is boundless. Starkweather later tells the lawman they'd be dead if he wasn't out of ammo. Ugh. What a prick. Like because of the heroic actions. Of bystander Joe Sprinkle in Lahman, Ainsley, and Heflin, the bloody nightmare of Charlie Red Starkweather's killing spree is finally at its end. Now, the drama surrounding the weeks and months following Starkweather's capture could be a podcast all its own. And while I won't go into every tiny detail here on Midwest murder, there are some significant moments in the aftermath that we're going to cover. To say that, Carol Fugati arrived at the police station in a state of shock would be a vast understatement through tears and clearly in anguish. She told law enforcement, quote, I was afraid he would take me to Washington State and kill me. He forced me to come along with him. In her account to law enforcement, she claimed to have no part in the killings. Charlie Starkweather, on the other hand, turned against Carol Fugati. Alleging in a signed statement that the now orphaned 14 year old girl was a willing partner in the bloodshed.
1: And let me guess, they're going to believe the murderous dumb shit that caused all of this. They're going to believe him over her.
0: We'll see. There was no legal hassle in transferring the prisoners and extraditing them from Wyoming to Nebraska, even though the two faced murder charges in both states. During his transfer from Wyoming to Lincoln, Charles Starkweather told Sheriff Carnop, quote, you're going to love this, Don, quote, I always wanted to be an outlaw. I always wanted to be a big criminal, but maybe not this big. Hell, I wasn't really mad at anybody. I just wanted to be somebody big.
1: So that was his motive. Cause that's been, that was like the number one question that I wrote down was what was his motive? So just to, just for somebody not to bully him, for him to be in control. That's, that's what it came down to. Yeah. You know, so for, so he could prove a point.
0: I I will say, and again, not something we'll go into in depth, but the Starkweather killings are the most psychologically studied killings in murder history
1: i would believe it because this guy is like a textbook
0: so 19 year old starkweather was held in the nebraska state pen but they didn't quite know what to do with the 14 year old juvenile carol fugati she was placed on medication and held in the state hospital authorities called her quote a great actress oh you've got to be kidding me law enforcement believed she had plenty of chances to escape or stop the killings in the end she would face murder charges just the same as Charlie Starkweather.
1: So the 14-year-old child who was in fear for her life, who was absolutely terrified and in shock and walking with a dazed look in her eye because, you know, she was in shock, is actually a murderer or facing those charges.
0: That's the way they want to play it. Yeah, it's... She... It's infuriating.
1: she She would be... uh, a candidate for or, or a the um, Northern Plains Children's the, Advocacy yes, Center. For a children's advocacy center, because it would be for a forensic interview of, of, yep. of some sort because of the trauma that she witnessed. But instead she's going to be held accountable for it. Yeah.
0: Weren't we're no such thing as forensic interviews in nineteen fifty-eight.
1: Right. That was I probably you not. That, was, that was probably just voodoo then.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, you so, know, why
1: why would we talk about therapy? That's ridiculous.
0: Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugati both pleaded not guilty at their arraignment on December second, nineteen fifty-seven. Starkweather was without a doubt going to fry. But the only real witness to anything Carol Fugatti may or may not have done was the redheaded maniac himself, Charlie Starkweather.
1: But if I may, this is this is the ridiculous part is because, yes, he is a lunatic. But, yeah, we're not going to believe the 14 year old child who is clearly traumatized. We're going to believe the lunatic. Who went on this murderous rampage.
0: Yep. Well, and, and no doubt whatever info they got from her was in that initial interview after she's been on the road for days, starved, tired, emotional, traumatized, and she's giving statements to police. The guy, Romer, who took her in, and this, we're getting into it, but like his wife. No, no, but Romer's wife came to the station to help care for her and to help comfort. Yes. Yes. I mean, yes. And so Starkweather, He's gonna fry. But again, the only real witness to anything Carol, Carol might have done was him. So Starkweather's trial began on May 5th, 1958. As Charlie was led to the courtroom, he was under the protection of the largest security force ever assembled for any single prisoner in the history of Nebraska. This force included police sharpshooters on every roof in sight and plainclothes deputies on every corner. Charlie arrived to court in a tan suit and tie.
1: May I ask if the uh, the ten year old deputies were were in uh, in attendance <laughs> there? Or
0: fair question. Oh, they they probably felt like they were. Yeah. Ultimately, Starkweather was the most enthusiastic witness against himself. He actually viewed his own lawyers as the enemy because they moved for an insanity plea. Starkweather, as you can imagine was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death on May 22, 1958. Charlie Red Starkweather's execution by electric chair was scheduled for June 25, 1959. On the night of his execution, a local radio station presented a rock and roll show featuring songs about death. Over 70 wild-ass teenagers massed outside the penitentiary throttling their cars and loudly blaring the rock and roll death show. At 10 p.m., the doctor who was designated to sign Charlie Starkweather's death certificate had a heart attack in the warden's office. Oh,
1: come on. And
0: died right on the spot.
1: You No. Are you making that up? No.
0: No. I shit you not.
1: I mean, I'm sorry for him and his family, but... It feels made up.
0: Yes, really. Oh, my gosh. But... The show must go on and Starkweather's execution, meaning the death show is carried out, right?
1: Like the blaring, the the rock and roll death show
0: and everybody's supposed to laugh at that. You guys, come on. Like I
1: was using his own words and nobody (laughs) laughed at that. Gosh. And then I sound like an asshole. I'm like, oh, you mean the death show? And everybody's like, what? What are you talking about? Okay.
0: Sorry. Starkweather was bolted with 2000 volts three times. That was it. That's the end of Starkweather's story. However, the life of 14-year-old Carol Fugati still hung in the balance. John MacArthur was appointed as her attorney, and defending this girl, fighting for her rights would become his life's work and the legacy of his law firm, eventually culminating in Carol Fugati's early release from prison after decades of effort. Wait, so that means she, that means she serves. Yep. Hang on. Yep. The work of the MacArthur law firm in defense of Fugati was generational. What began with John MacArthur ended with his son, Jim, who was just an assistant and a researcher in his father's law office when the trial of Carol Fugati began. MacArthur fought all the way to the Supreme Court to get Carol tried as a juvenile. It was denied.
1: What an injustice. What an absolute injustice. Dude,
0: it's, it's so frustrating. I've, I've, I'm like, I'm trying to maintain myself here. Opening statements in the, in the trial of Carol Fugati began on October 29th. In her trial... There were no witnesses with any personal knowledge or information that Carol Fugati had done anything wrong except Charlie Starkweather.
1: The lunatic who had already died by electric shock.
0: Now, yeah, no, well, yes, Yes. preceding her trial, yes, all of everything that was used against her were his statements. Yeah. So something that must be noted here. These events happened before the great reforms in the handling of criminal cases and in criminal justice. Those didn't occur until nineteen, about 1963. In 1958, it was common practice to hold an accused person incommunicado. There was no right to an attorney. In fact, Prosecutors and law enforcement usually held a suspect to prevent them from speaking with an attorney until after they'd asked all the questions they wanted. There was no search warrant protection. Cases were, in the opinion of attorney John MacArthur, built formidably by police and accusers through extremely questionable means. MacArthur also discovered things in the course of his own investigation. For example, Carol told him about writing a note while she was in captivity and putting it in her pocket, hoping she could pass it on to someone. The sheriff in Wyoming who arrested Carol and his wife both told MacArthur about this note, and it was turned over as evidence to the law enforcement people. But something happened to the note, and it could never be obtained from the state. Macarthur was also able to determine another crucial fact with absolute certainty: that at the time of Carol Ann Fugatti's family was murdered, she was in school. In spite of Macarthur's efforts for Carol's defense, she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison on November twenty first, nineteen
1: fifty eight. It is it is so infuriating, and I know I bring it up a lot, but you know, in nineteen twenty, we stopped being able to mail our children. In the U.S. Postal Service, right? I mean, and, and so
0: sign of progress. So
1: 1920, we can't. I know I've hu-
0: wanted to mail my children away a time or two. <laughs> I mean,
1: there are times. Yeah, I mean, but we can't. We can't mail our kids anymore in 1920, and only 38 years later, we still don't treat a 14-year-old child like a human being,
0: like a victim. Like yeah, it's it's and it's and and we, won- so we wonder we
1: wonder why people victim shame to this day. We wonder why. And it's, it's got, because it's maybe, got an origin. It, it does.
0: Ugh. considered to be a model prisoner. Fugati was paroled in 1976 after serving 17 years. Father and son, John and Jim MacArthur spent more than a decade making appeals to every viable ruling court body. Finally, in 1972, they applied for a commutation of her sentence. It was granted, making her eligible for parole in 76. At Carol's hearing in 1976, the parole board voted to parole Carol Fugati and moved her to Michigan, where she lived for 10 years. She was later released from parole after just five. Over a dozen people showed up to testify to Carol's benefit at the parole hearing and at the sentence commutation. People she worked with while incarcerated, administrators and employees at the Henderson Community Hospital, where she worked while serving her sentence, even even the superintendent of the women's institution where Carol was held over the years testified that she was ready and deserving of parole
1: because she was a victim and hadn't done anything wrong. Right. Was her name ever cleared? Like, was it? Was it, was the 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 sentence like? Was it completely like?
0: Not gonzo. T- not to my knowledge. Oh my gosh. It may have been. To my knowledge, it. I did not see that it was. So she, she did the 17 years, served parole. I think it was the early eighties when she was officially released from any level of, of of, of paper, basically. She didn't have paper left. And then, and then she would later change her name. She had a close relationship with uh, MacArthur's son, gave some interviews for him. There was a movie made about this. I can't recall what it is right offhand, but she, she also did, she did a little bit of. Agreed to be interviewed with the producers mm-hmm. of the film sure. to give them a little bit of insight, and and that interview was actually conducted through the lawyer of John MacArthur. So again, like it it was his MacArthur's life work became Carol, and that passed to his son, and it's just really powerful to me.
1: Yeah, thank thank goodness they never gave up.
0: Right? Yeah, if they if I they mean, had given up, she she might have done life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some okay. some
0: some guy that that was not hired just said, this is freaking wrong and I don't want it to be wrong and I'm not going to let it be like that. Nobody, you know, he was a uh, state appointed. He was yeah. a court appointed.
1: I'm going to ask a very, very unpopular question. Was, ugh, yeah, it's actually very sour in my mouth. I didn't want to say it, but did the bullying of, what's his face, somehow, I mean, is it, do you think that it was a, did, do you think it played a role in his, in his development and in in uh his reaction and his his mental capacity.
0: Yeah, to some extent, it's not it's not the sole driving force. I think there's a number of factors, both socio and economic that that sort of contributed to him becoming a, becoming a killer, but it it yeah, it it, it, it it's in there. It's it, it's in, it's in the mix. Hmm. This episode of Midwest Murder was co-written by Joan Lanto and Dr. Seanan Tangney, and it's produced, mixed, and edited by the Good Talk Network. Midwest Murder is co-hosted by Don Palumbo and Joan Lanto. Sources for today's episode, history.nebraska.gov, Wyoming History, that's yohistory.org, murderpedia.org and thepeopleofhistory.com as well as historycentral.com. Again, you can get Midwest Murder merch at tpublic public slash stores slash Midwest Murder. Support us on buy me a coffee slash Midwest Murder.